You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Nehemiah, the series is called Never Give Up. I love the book of Nehemiah. I love the book of Nehemiah because I see so much in Nehemiah that I don't see in myself. There is such a huge gap between the way Nehemiah lived his life and the way that I know I live my life, and I'm sure most of us feel the same way. And what I'm hoping is that during the course of this series, that the gap between the way Nehemiah lived and the way that we lived, that we would close that gap by the grace of God. Nehemiah was a man who never gave up. When the task became too difficult, he didn't give up. When opposition came his way, he never gave up. He never gave up on God's word. He never gave up on prayer. He never gave up that God was working in God's people even when God's people were doing such frustrating things. He never gave up on God's purpose and God's plan. And so today we venture into this this new series, this new study, this studying the life and legacy of a man named Nehemiah. The book begins with a simple introduction. He says, these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now what happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. The book of Nehemiah kind of begins sort of like everyday life in Brampton. Brampton is just one of those unique cities where you could be born and raised in the Philippines and you're snacking on chana masala from India, drinking ginger beer from Jamaica, watching a soccer game between Portugal and the Netherlands, and on Facebook with your your Ukrainian friend who lives in Nigeria. That's just Brampton. And Nehemiah chapter 1 begins, it says the month of Kislev, that's a Babylonian calendar. I'm in Susa, the, 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 the winter palace location for the Persian Empire. And then travelers come from Judah. So you've got Babylonian, you've got Persian, and then you've got Jewish. How do we make sense of, of the setting of Nehemiah? It was a, this, just like we're living in a complicated time where things are changing so rapidly, where the world is getting smaller and things seem to be happening with more frequency and more intensity. That's the kind of world that Nehemiah was living in. And in order for us to understand Nehemiah in 445 BC, we need to sort of take a, a brief history, a brief tour of the history of the Jewish people. And so we're going to cover 500 years of biblical history in the next few minutes, so buckle up, all right? So to help me stay focused and to help you stay on track, there's a timeline on the back. We're going to begin at the back. There's a, there's a timeline on the back of your handouts. And, and I'm gonna, I've sort of sketched things out in my mind, so you're going to see some things on the screen. But most importantly, we're going to be looking into God's Word. So get that Bible in your hand, and you're in the book of Nehemiah. Get your finger there. Let's see those Bibles. All right, so let's show me your Bible. Don't, don't be afraid. Yeah, there you go. Show me your Bible. Okay, so we're in Nehemiah right now. Now we're going to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. Find 2 Samuel chapter 5. So just start working your way backwards towards the front of the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 5. 
The book of 1 Samuel is where we're first introduced to this incredible biblical character named David. This heartthrob, poetry writing, giant slaying, shepherd boy turned monarch, the, the hero of the nation. And we're first introduced to him in 1 Samuel. And towards the end of 1 Samuel, he's running for his life because Saul, who was the king of Israel, wanted him dead. He was so filled with jealous rage towards David that he chased him all through the wilderness for years. But 1 Samuel ends, Saul is dead. In 2 Samuel, David finally becomes king. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, you are bone, you are, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be a prince over Israel. Then in verse 3, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So we're going to begin with the, the reign of David. And it goes on in the next verse. It says in verse 4, At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 30, uh, 33 years. When David became king, Jerusalem wasn't even a Jewish city. Jerusalem was populated by the Jebusites. And, and David led an invasion of Jerusalem and conquered that great city. And then that city became the capital city for the people of Israel. And so that's the first thing on your timeline. And here's how we'll sketch it out. So the story begins with David establishing Jerusalem. Have you heard of it? It's a pretty big deal. A pretty big deal in biblical history, pretty big deal in contemporary history. And so David establishes Jerusalem as the capital city. And David, before he wants to build, a, uh, build up this city, before he wants to just sort of um, do a whole lot of other things, his major priority is he wants to put a temple in Jerusalem. Because when the people were in Israel, God was in a tent called the tabernacle, and God was still in a tent. They'd been in the promised land for generations, and God was still in a tent. David's like, I live in a permanent house. Let's have a permanent house for God. He wants to build a temple. But God tells him, look now at chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and find verse 12. David wants to build this temple, but God tells him in 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. So God tells David, it's not gonna be you. It's gonna be someone else. That turns out to be his son, Solomon. And so the next place on your timeline is, is 1 Kings chapter seven. So the rest of, let's turn the pages, let's find 1 Kings. The rest of 2 Samuel is the reign of David and the different ups and downs of his life. And then 1 Kings begins with the reign of Solomon. And Solomon's main priority, because David had drilled it into him, you need to build this temple. And David made all of the arrangements. Here's all the people who are going to build. Here's all the materials. Here's all the money. Here's all the finances. So Solomon, go do it. No, seriously, Solomon, do it. And so Solomon makes that his major priority. The beginning of the book of 1 Kings is Solomon making the arrangements and then the construction. You get to 1 Kings chapter 7. 
And it says in verse 51, thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And so David establishes Jerusalem. This is going to be the capital city for the people of Israel. Then Solomon now is the one. He takes that city and he puts a glorious temple, something that is fitting, something that honors the Lord. The pattern of the tabernacle, the same sort of idea with the, with the holy place and then the holy of holies, the altar to make offerings for sin. And this was supposed to be a place, not just for the Jewish people to worship God, but for people from all over the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation to come to Israel. That was the plan, where people to come to this city, the city of Jerusalem, and worship at this temple, Solomon's temple, and know who God was. Then in chapter 8, you just look at the paragraph headings. It says that the ark, of, the ark was brought into the temple. Then Solomon blesses the Lord like we just bless the Lord in worship. And then Solomon prays a prayer of dedication in the next section. And then in chapter 9, God answers Solomon's prayer very specifically. Look at 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there, notice this, forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. God says, this place, this city, Jerusalem, this temple, for all time. My eyes will be watching it. My heart will be there. God is committing to watch over that place. He is committing to be emotionally connected to that place. His heart is going to be in that place, the city of Jerusalem, that place, that temple. Listen, God doesn't change his mind. God, God doesn't make a New Year's resolution and then blow it 10 days in like many of us did. God said, my heart and my eyes will be there on that place. It was true then, it's true now. It was true throughout all the history that we are going to reflect upon today as we go through God's word. But then he gives, he gives Solomon this stern warning. Look at, look at verse four. He says, and as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you. David was by no means perfect, but David walked with integrity. David made huge, massive, colossal mistakes, but David was a man who was humble and contrite, and that's the kind of person that God looks to. And David knew when he was wrong and confessed it. Verse five, he says, if you live like that, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Verse six, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, Verse seven, then I will cut off Israel from the land. Then look down at verse eight. And this house will become a heap of ruins. A stern warning. God says, listen, my eyes are on this place. My heart is for this place. But listen, if your eyes start looking at other gods, if your heart starts wandering away from me, God says, everything that I've provided here, every good and perfect gift that I have given to you, this city and this temple, he says, it's all gonna be ruins. So God lays out this stern warning to Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. 
Solomon was a a wonderful, benevolent, wise king who led this nation into prosperity and success that was known all around the world. But Solomon did not finish strong. We're in a series called Never Give Up. Solomon gave up. Here's how it happened. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they be with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon no doubt thought, come on, I'm the wisest guy in the world. I wrote Proverbs 5, I wrote Proverbs 7, I know how to avoid sexual temptation, I know how to avoid idolatry, I'm smart. Listen, that's true for like regular people, they need to follow those commands. I understand why God would have those commands for the regular people, but I'm sort of like a cut above, and I can handle this. I can go into this sort of tempting kind of situation, I can start these relationships, it won't affect me. Listen, it affected him. Verse four says, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. Some of us think, yeah, I I can handle this. I can take a little bit of sin, a little bit of disobedience, just in a small amount. It's not gonna get out of control. Listen, for Solomon, it got out of control. And we think, you know, this is just me. This is my own private sinful thing. It's not gonna affect every, every area of my life. No, it will bleed into every part of your life. For Solomon, it escaped into his relationships. It spilled over into his rule as a king. Let me show you what I mean. Look at, um, look at 1 Kings chapter 12. And verse 4, Solomon is dead now. He did not finish strong. Listen, now his son, Rehoboam, is taking over as king. Listen to what the people said. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, and we will serve you. What are they saying about Solomon? Solomon enslaved his own people. He put a yoke on them. He made them do hard labor. This benevolent, wise king who people were coming all from all over the world to see this free country, to see this beautiful palace, to see this amazing king who was administrating and leading and all of the wealth and the abundance and the strength of the economy. And by the time Solomon finished, he was forcing hard labor on his own people. They were set free from Egypt. They weren't supposed to be slaves. And now the people are coming And they're asking Rehoboam, Solomon's son, hey, could you just lighten the load a little bit? Our yoke is so heavy. We're doing all of this work. Verse five, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, it says, he said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. So then Rehoboam had a couple of meetings. The first meeting he had was with all Solomon's advisors. And Solomon's advisors, they knew that Solomon was off course. And they said, listen, this is the time for change, man. Your dad was a great man, but he didn't finish well. And uh, stop this oppression. Stop, uh, stop working the people so hard. Listen, if you change your ways, the people will serve you. They'll do anything for you. So he has this meeting with the older men. And then he goes and he has a second meeting. He has another meeting with 
his buddies, the guys who sort of grew up with him around the palace. And they said, hey, this is your time to really show who's boss. This is your time to say, hey, man, don't, I can't even believe you asked that question. Just because you asked for it to be a lighter load, you should say you're going to get a heavier load and then like stare them down like this. I don't know if you found this in your life. I've certainly found it in mine. Anytime where I go in, like I'm going to show someone who's boss, that's just a bad situation. But Rehoboam, rather than listening to the older and the wiser, he listens to the young guys. So they all get back together. Look down at verse 13. And the king answered the people harshly. His tone is harsh towards them. He answered them harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given to, to him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I'll add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. I'm not sure what that means. That's like out of a comic book or something. And then he does the stare down. And this is what he's expecting, right? He's played over the conversation in their head. He expects them all to be like, oh, we're so sorry. Oh, I'm sorry we asked the question, please. But here's what happens. Verse 14, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have with David? We have no inheritance with the son of Jesse. To your own tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. You see, David was from Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. There's 10 other tribes. They're all like, we don't like you. We're going to start our own country. Rehoboam's sort of doing this stare, and he's like, that's not how I was expecting this to turn out. And so David was great, established Jerusalem. Solomon built the temple, but Rehoboam was a total nightmare. The, the country that was once united in worship of God ends up dividing into two countries. Let me show you geographically what this meant. This is what Israel used to look like when David and Solomon ruled over it. But now because of Rehoboam, being a bonehead, the country now looks like this, becomes divided into two countries. So if we go back to the timeline then, you've got, you've got two countries. The country to the north is called Israel. The capital city was Samaria. And then Judah maintained the, Jerusalem as its capital city. But now you have two independent countries. This is the plan that is unfolding. This is what is taking place. So then Israel to the north, they get this, they get this, new, this new king. He's, he's named Jeroboam. And check out what Jeroboam does in chapter 12, verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's got a geographical concern. He knows that the people, even though they're mad at Rehoboam, they still love God. And God has chosen Jerusalem and God's temple is there. So he knows that his people, they're all gonna travel back to Judah and they're all gonna go for the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Passover and all of those times where the people were supposed to come and worship. He knows that that's gonna happen. And so if you thought Rehoboam was a bonehead, check out what 
Check out what Jeroboam does. Verse 28, so the king took counsel. These guys need new counselors. The king took, new, took counsel and made two calves of gold and said to the people, you have, gone, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, you don't need to know a lot about the Bible to know that a golden calf is a bad idea. And two golden calves is a really bad idea. And as soon as Israel separates, immediately they start worshiping idols. And that idolatry continues on, king after king, generation after generation. And this is how the story of the people of Israel unfolds. And so in your handout there, we just looked at 1 Kings chapter 12. That's Judah and Israel separate. The ten tribes become the nation of Israel. Judah is left on its own to the south. And God is patient with the people of Israel. Even though they're worshiping idols, God is continually telling them, return to me. Worship me. I am the true God. Repent and turn. But they refuse to listen. So now turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. So the rest of the book of 1 Kings is just an absolute train wreck. You've got all of these kings of Israel making all of these bad decisions. You've got Judah fighting against Israel. Sometimes Judah fighting with Israel. And then by the time you get to 2 Kings, more dysfunction, more ungodly leadership. By the time you get to 2 Kings chapter 17, God is about to say, enough is enough. He was so patient. He was so loving. He was so kind. He was so merciful. But then comes judgment. In verse 5 of chapter 17, it says, Then the king of Assyria, which was the, the greatly feared, unbelievably violent superpower in the world at that time, in 722 B.C., the Assyrian army comes along and with a big sword, they end the nation of Israel. It's just no more. They take all the people away. They repopulate it with new people. That's the area Samaria. Um, in, in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman from Samaria. That's the people who are repopulated after the Assyrians invaded and took over. Those ten tribes are called what's called the, the ten lost tribes of Israel. Sin leads to judgment. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Don't think, don't think that there aren't any consequences for our actions. So that happens in 2 Kings chapter 17. Then there's an explanation. Look at verse 7. Here's why it happened. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord. That's why it took place. Look at verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. Up along the top of that timeline, Israel, when he says every prophet, every seer, the book of 1 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, Elijah and Elisha, all of those miracles, all of that preaching, fire coming down from heaven. And the people still refuse to listen, still refuse to follow the one and true God, even though he continually, lovingly, patiently warned them. Then the king of Assyria is not done. 
If you uh, look at um, the next chapter, chapter 18, it talks about this, this king in uh, Judah, Hezekiah. Then look at uh, verse 13. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So now he's, he's taken over Israel to the north. Now he's headed south and he's plowing through all of these cities. And eventually, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrian army. And then something happens in the next couple of chapters, in chapter 18 and 19 and 20, something that's so memorable that these, these, this content is repeated not only in First and Second Kings, it's also repeated in First and Second Chronicles, it's also repeated in the book of Isaiah. That Israel is surrounded. Sorry, Jerusalem is surrounded. It gets confusing when you got the double kingdom thing. So Jerusalem which is in Judah to the south, is surrounded by the Assyrian army, the army that just flattened the whole country of Israel. Ten tribes gone just like that. You got one tribe, one city, fully surrounded. Hezekiah doesn't know what to do. Again, just look at the the chapter headings. Isaiah shows up. Isaiah starts comforting Hezekiah, starts prophesying to him. And then you get down to chapter 19 and verse 32. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city. Hezekiah is probably like, "Uh, yes, he is. He's right there. I can see the army. And God's like, he's not coming in. And then in that night, an angel of the Lord strikes the Assyrian army dead. They all go home. An incredible miracle. Listen, Judah had the temple and they had the city of Jerusalem and so they remained faithful. They didn't go down the golden calf route right away but as time went on, idols made it into the temple and idol worship made it into the hearts of the people of Judah as well but God was so merciful. That sword of Assyria was coming down and God had every reason to have sword come down and take out Judah as well. The only thing that stopped it was prayer. The only thing, not some battle plan, not some scheme, not a bunch of leaders with a whiteboard trying to figure things out. The only thing that stopped the Assyrian army was prayer. Hezekiah prayed and God answered. Then in chapter 20, it says that Hezekiah gets sick and he recovers And then at the end of chapter 20, these people come from this country that no one had really heard of called Babylon. They had a history a long, long time ago, but they weren't much of a big deal. Assyria was the big deal. And these people come from Babylon. And then Isaiah tells Hezekiah, you know what? This Babylon, these people from Babylon, they might not seem like a big deal right now. They're going to become a big deal, a bigger deal than Assyria. And they're going to come and they're going to invade Jerusalem. Isaiah predicted that hundreds of years before It took place. And that's the next spot in your timeline there. There's no Bible reference for it, but Babylon conquers Assyria. Assyria was the world power, and Babylon is now taken over as the ones who are in control of really the entire known world. Now, Judah manages to kind of keep it real. Hezekiah was a good king. He prayed hard. God answered. But then there were Manasseh and Ammon. There were some really bad kings, but then there were good kings like Josiah. So you have these sort of this up and down of good kings and 
bad kings and eventually a long string of bad kings and that whole temple was neglected and the whole city was filled with Egypt and Babylon, the new superpower, makes an entrance in 2 Kings chapter 20. We'll start in chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. Let's hear the pages of our Bibles turning. Great to know that you're following along with, with me. 2 Kings 24.10. 2 Kings 24.10, at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged. And for 23 years, the city of Jerusalem was under siege. That glorious city with that beautiful temple, the city that David established, where Solomon put the temple in, that city was besieged for 23 years. And then finally, they break through. All of these calls to repentance Isaiah and then Jeremiah and then Ezekiel, all of these invitations. Repent, turn back to the Lord. He'll save you. It worked for Hezekiah. It will work for you. And they're saying, no, no, our idols will save us. Our sin will save us. We will save ourselves. And then you get to chapter 25, verse 9. It says, he burned the house of the Lord. What God told Solomon, the warning if you turn away from me, listen, my eyes and my heart are in this place, but if you turn away from me, this place will be flattened. It says, they burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard, Chaldeans is just another name for Babylonians, they broke down the walls of Jerusalem and the rest of the people who were left in the city, the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. And so the next spot on your timeline is 2 Kings 25, 8 to 11. Babylon conquers Judah. And so you can visualize that here. So 136 years went by, but then eventually... Babylon conquers Judah and, and they eventually break down the walls and they eventually destroy the temple. And then it says that the people were sent into exile. The people were sent into exile. And part of us are hearing this and is, in, is, is biblical history, is, it, is this just random? Is this just sort of things just kind of happening? And, and how is it that I'm supposed to never give up when, I, when I, don't, I don't understand what's happening? I don't know what's going on. One ruler raises up, another ruler comes, one group of people sin, another group of people sin. What's actually going on? Well, listen, all of this is carrying out according to God's perfect plan. As we go through this series, we're going to have look at a number of reasons why we should never give up. And the reason this week is because never give up because God has a plan. Never give up because God has a plan. On the screen there, it says exile. Uh, they went into exile. The next spot on your timeline is Jeremiah 25, 11, where they're going to be in exile for 70 years. Years. There's two ways of looking at the 70 years. One is related to the people. The first group of people who got shipped off to Babylon, they left in 609 BC. And the first people to come back came back in 539. That's 70 years. Other people look at the exile based on the temple. The temple was destroyed in 586 and rebuilt in 516. And so there's different ways of looking at the 70 years. But the 70 years was not random. It was not accidental. It was part of God's plan. 
one of the prophets who was pleading with the people of Judah to repent and to pray and to ask God to save them from the Babylonians. This is what Jeremiah said. He said that this is all happening according to God's plan. He said, this whole land will become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah predicted that. And then Jeremiah further clarified what would happen next. This is what he said. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, verse 11, is the, that's the verse we love. That's the verse we put on our coffee cups and our posters with rainbows and kittens. God knows the plans, prosper, hope, all of that. We miss the part about the fact that sin has consequences and that God's plan for us often involves suffering, difficulty, and hardship. If you want to quote Jeremiah 29, 11 and think that all your problems are going to be solved by Tuesday, you need to look at verse 10. Verse 10 says 70 years. But God made it clear, this is carrying out. We can never give up because we know that God has a plan. I was reading in my own devotions over the last several weeks, the second half of the book of Isaiah. He was one of the other prophets. He encouraged Hezekiah. He spoke to the people. This is what he said. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I love this. I will raise up their ruins. You might feel like today you're living in the midst of ruins and you know what got you into this mess. You knew that it was some sinful choices that you had made and you're trying to rebuild it. God says, I will raise up the ruins. You may be in a family that feels so dysfunctional and just so messed up. Communication is non-existent. Trust is out the window and you just feel like this is it. It's never going to change. God says, never give up. I will rebuild the ruins. You might be having such a hard time living a pure life before the Lord and you carry around this guilt and the shame of sinful decisions that you've made in the past and all around you in the media and the relationships, there's just temptation everywhere. You've given in so easily and so frequently in the past. You think, what's the point? I'm just going to quit. God says, never give up. I will rebuild build the ruins. You might be buried in debt and you've dug yourself in such a big hole and you think there's no point, there's no hope. It's gonna, it's gonna, I'm gonna be dead before I pay off all of this interest, let alone the principle. There's no way I'm gonna do this. God says, never give up. I will rebuild the ruins. God has a plan. God has a plan and a purpose for his people. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. It may be hard. It may take 70 years, but he's going to bring about his purpose. He is going to fulfill his plan for you. Then the next part of Isaiah 44, he says something amazing. Right out of nowhere, he says, he says of Cyrus, he says, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose. People are reading this when Isaiah was writing it. It's like, who's Cyrus? And then for years and years, like decades and decades, like a century, for 
Such a long time. People are like, who's Cyrus, by the way? Like Isaiah, I'm picking up what you're putting down. We're going to rebuild Jerusalem. But who is Cyrus? But he says of this person that he's like a shepherd. He's going to be a king. A shepherd was euphemistic for, for a monarch or a ruler. And he's going to fulfill God's purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built of the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And God works in mysterious ways. And that's exactly what he did in the history of his people. The next spot on the timeline there is Daniel chapter 5. We don't have time to look, look there. We don't have time to or don't have space to fit it on the screen. But Daniel chapter 5 is that sort of familiar strange story. In Babylon, there's this ruler named Belshazzar. He's having this huge party. And uh, in the middle of the party, a finger appears and starts writing in the wall. And, and that's, that's part of our culture today. We say, oh, the writing's on the wall. And what's, when someone says, well, the writing's on the wall, what does that mean? It means it's going to be over soon. And in an unbelievable turn of events, the mighty Babylonian empire that had the known world in a stranglehold for so long, in one night, the night of the writing on the wall, Babylon is conquered. And a new empire emerges, the Medo-Persian Empire. And that happened, it's recorded in Daniel 5, it happened in 539 B.C. The king of the Medo-Persian Empire went by the name of Cyrus. All of these years wondering, what did Isaiah mean by Cyrus? Who is he, well, who is he calling out this person by name? This, this appointed person who would fulfill this purpose. Is he going to be some king of Israel? No, not a king of Israel. Is he going to emerge? He's going to come out of Babylon? No, he's not going to come out of Babylon. He's going to come out of a, an empire that no one saw coming, the Medo-Persians. And Cyrus does something incredible in his first year. Take a look at the book of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. I want you to go right to the end of Second Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles is just a summary of everything I just talked about from Second Samuel into First and Second Kings. It's First and Second Chronicles summarizes all of that, but to make it more interesting, they add some genealogies. Like two of you got that. Uh, but uh, so 2 Chronicles sums up the whole history of Israel from David all the way to, the, to Babylon being conquered. And now, now Cyrus is in charge. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Cyrus is in charge. He's only been in charge for a year. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord of the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. What did he say? He said 70 years, right? That the word might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that very Cyrus that Isaiah said would be his servant and fulfill his purpose, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. 
For 70 years, the people are like, how are we ever gonna get back home? How are we ever gonna return to the promised land? How are we ever gonna rebuild it? How is Babylon ever gonna let us go? Babylon wasn't gonna let you go. God had a plan. His plan involved Cyrus. The Medo Persians were gonna come out of nowhere, conquer Babylon, and Cyrus, for whatever reason, decides I'm sending all the people of Judah home. And by the way, I'm gonna fund the construction of the temple. Only God can do that. Only God could have saw that coming. Only God could have made that happen. But listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have God in every equation that you're facing. Every situation, there is a God factor. In every situation, there is a supernatural influence, a God who works in mysterious ways, who comes out of nowhere, who does incredible and amazing things. And we can never give up because God has a plan. No one saw this coming. Isaiah mentioned the guy by name and no one saw Cyrus coming. He made this incredible decree. So if you pick up the timeline then, they were in exile and the exile lasted for 70 years and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, Cyrus makes this decree and the people of Judah, they're a nation again. Well, they're not a nation, they're a province in the Persian Empire. But they're allowed to go home and they're allowed to rebuild the temple And then the book of Ezra, which is the book, we're getting closer to Nehemiah, one more book. The book of Ezra then tells about how the temple got rebuilt. If you go to Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14. Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree I love this, the decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. Why? Because God had a plan. God decreed, he decreed that Cyrus would make that decree. Then I love this, verse 15, and this house was finished. They rebuilt the temple. But here's the thing, they built the temple before they built the wall. And the um, the chronology of Ezra is a little bit wonky You really got to study it closely to follow the chronology. But if you go to, just look back at Ezra chapter four, verse 11. As the temple's going up and the temple's completed, there's all of these enemies because there were people living close to Jerusalem in Judah. They weren't exactly happy that that these deportees, these exiles were coming home all of a sudden. And so they tried to appeal to the government to stop the people of Judah from rebuilding. So they start writing a letter They write a letter to the king and after Cyrus came this king Artaxerxes. In verse 11 of Ezra 4 it says, this is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Verse 13, now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. They tell him, hey, if these people, if they get that wall built, they're gonna shut themselves in that wall and they're not gonna pay taxes and they're gonna start to do their own thing. They're gonna lead a revolution and try to become their own country. And so Artaxerxes, who's in power at the time, he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want to have to reorganize the budget. He doesn't think the budget will balance itself. He, he thinks that he's, he's got to figure this out. And so he, 
He says, no, I need that revenue. I need those taxes. And so he, so he goes, he writes back. Verse 17, the king sent an answer. Here's his answer, verse 21. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. Then verse 23. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, these, all, these, all these guys, they went in haste to the Jews. They couldn't wait to get there. They went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem. Notice this. And by force and power made them cease. They're there just trying to build the wall, trying to finish the job. That they thought, I thought everything was going great. And have you found this when you're trying to follow God's plan? And things are really bad, but then all of a sudden things start to get good again. And then all of a sudden they get even worse. That's exactly what happened to these, these people. They get back to Judah and they build the temple. It took, them, it took them like 20 years to build the temple. And they're thinking, okay, now, now that that's done, oh man, okay, let's get started on the wall. And then now by force, they get attacked. The, the, the wall that they started to build, they gets destroyed. And it won't be rebuilt, Artaxerxes said in verse 21, until I send another decree, that wall is not going up. And so to finish off the timeline, this is where we're at. The temple has been built, but the wall is destroyed. And so that's 500 years of biblical history. Let's go back to the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. Things will begin to make a little bit more sense now with that background. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, which is a, that's a Hebrew month. Or sorry, that, that's, a, that's a Babylonian month. The Hebrew people lived in Babylon for 70 years. You can imagine that they would start calling months according to the Babylonian calendar. So we understand that now. That's the month of Kislev. In the 20th year, I was in Susa, the capital. That was the, the, where the winter palace for the Persian kings was. And so here's Nehemiah. He's got Babylon in his history, in his background. And now he's in Susa because Persia is in charge. But he's curious about this, these visitors. His brother has come from Judah. Verse 2. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. He wanted to know, hey, I heard about that decree. And we're going to know why, and as the story unfolds, why did he know about that decree? He knew that the decree had been sent, that the wall couldn't be rebuilt. And here's the report that they give in verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. This is the situation that they find themselves in. And all of that by means of a long introduction and go back to the front page of your sermon handout now. There's three points that I want you to make note of. This is the situation that Nehemiah is facing. He is in Susa. He is in the place of power. He is in a place of security and wealth and stability. But his people are in a place of insecurity and hardship, hostility and uncertainty. And he recognizes very quickly that three things need to happen. Number one, a broken wall needs to be rebuilt. 
a broken wall needs to be rebuilt. And the only way it could be rebuilt is if King Artaxerxes, who made the decree to stop building the wall, the only way it could be rebuilt is if he were to make a new decree to start building it. So the king's mind is gonna have to change. Now there's a lot of emphasis on the building of the wall when people teach about the book of Nehemiah. And it's, it's kind of odd to me because the book of Nehemiah it covers a span of many years. 52 days were spent building the wall. Nehemiah is a book of 13 chapters. The wall's done by chapter six. This is not a book about a wall. This is a book about something far more profound. Not only did a broken wall need to be rebuilt, also jot this down, a broken people needed to be restored. If you notice, Nehemiah's first question is he concerned, he was asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, not about the state of the wall. He wanted to know how are the people doing. The people of God are not the, the walls that surround them. The people of God are not the programs that they carry out. The people of God are the people of God. And that's what mattered to Nehemiah and that's what matters to God and that's what needs to matter to us. And the people were broken and they needed to be restored. They were in a place that was vulnerable. They were in a place that was fearful. They're in a place filled with uncertainty and instability. And then here's the third one. A broken covenant needs to be renewed. A broken covenant needs to be renewed. And we remember from God's words to Solomon, why is the wall broken? Why are the people broken? The wall's broken because the people broke the covenant. The people turned away from God and started serving foreign gods. And any time that we turn away from the one and true living God and go after idols, and I'm not just talking about statues in some temple, I'm talking about anything that we worship and serve instead of God, we invite destruction, desolation, and defeat into our lives. The covenant had been broken. You're to trace anything through your life, any problem or issue. At the core of it is that you or someone around you has broken covenant with God, has gone away from, listen, we, we harm ourselves, we harm other people. And all of that comes when we get our eyes off, off God and we get our eyes onto ourselves or onto our idols. So these three things need to happen. And maybe you're here today and as you head into this new year, you find yourself, you're, you're, in a, you're, you're like Nehemiah sitting in Susa. You're in a place of power. You're in a position of strength. You're in a position of uh, stability. And maybe God's gonna use this series in your life and I'm praying that God would do this. That God would burden you for the people of God that God would burden you for lost people in this world like never before. And that God would take you from that place of comfort and make the kinds of sacrifices that we're gonna see Nehemiah make and make, take the kinds of steps of faith in order not just to receive blessing, but to distribute blessing to other people. Maybe you're here today and you long to be in a place like Susa. And the people that you identify with are the people living among the ruins. Your relationships, your, your finances, your, your own personal walk with God, it's just all in ruins. And you're just wondering, can God rebuild this? I, I, just, I just want to quit. You need to know that God has a plan. Nehemiah was part of God's plan. 
And God has a plan for you and your situation. He will rebuild. If you're fearful, if you're insecure, if you feel like you're vulnerable, God brought you to this church. God's allowing you to hear this message. We as a church, we wanna come alongside you and help you trust God to rebuild that which is broken. But here's the amazing thing. I'll give away the end. The, the wall gets up. The covenant gets renewed. The people are restored. But God's plan continues. You see, Nehemiah was only just another step in the timeline. That city needed to be built because someone else needed to come. Someone like Nehemiah had to leave a place of power and prestige and affluence and security, had to leave that place to come to a place filled with brokenness. Jesus Christ was in a citadel of sorts. He was in heaven. He was at, at the right hand of the Father. He was at the throne. And he chose to leave. He chose to enter into the brokenness of this world. Nehemiah left the palace to go and help one city and one group of people. Jesus left his palace in heaven in order to help all people from all nations. And Nehemiah, he had a burden to renew the covenant. Jesus didn't just come to renew the covenant. He came to bring a new covenant. A new covenant that he said, this is my new covenant in my blood, he said. Jesus not only came to us in our brokenness, Jesus allowed himself to be broken so that we could be not just restored, but that we could be resurrected to newness of life as he was risen for the dead. This is the greater story. You see, those walls that Nehemiah built, those were walls that Jesus himself would have leaned on. The gates that he would have established, those were gates that Jesus himself would have walked through. God has a greater plan. And the timeline goes on. The timeline goes past Nehemiah. The timeline reaches us right here in our own brokenness, in our own lives. But then the timeline has an ultimate end. Turn with me to one more place in the Bible. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And this is the ultimate reason why we should never give up. Not only do we know how the book of Nehemiah ends, we also know how this world is going to end. Christ is coming back. Revelation 21 says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that was established by David as the capital, the Jerusalem that Solomon put a temple in, the Jerusalem that was destroyed by the Babylonians because of sin, the Jerusalem that was rebuilt in the book of Ezra, the Jerusalem that, that, that the walls were reestablished by Nehemiah. It, there's a new Jerusalem. And it's not built from the ground up like Nehemiah. It's built, it's, it's a gift from above. Coming down out of heaven, it says, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Listen, when we, when we hear about a series called Never Give Up, when we look at an incredible life like the life of Nehemiah, the temptation for us will be that we got to build our own wall. 
that we just got to pull up our socks and work a little harder and, and, and try to build our way up to God so that God will be pleased with us or so that we could, we could rescue ourselves from our own dysfunction. That's not the plan. The plan is that there is a Jerusalem that's already been built, not by our effort, but that's been built and established because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And we are waiting for that beautiful city to come and to descend. And that's why we will never give up because God has a plan, a plan for all of us, a plan for you, a plan for me. We're all part of it and God is working. And we know that we can never give up because God will never give up on us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. God, recounting the history of your people just even reminds me of my own life and my own history, God. You were so patient with Israel, with Judah. You were so patient with me, God. And God, thank you that just as you had a plan for those people, God, that you have a plan for me. Thank you that just as, though, just as you had a plan for the people of Israel and Judah, you have a plan for every person in this room. And that you have invited us to be prepared and to be ready for this glorious new Jerusalem that is coming. Not that we are building ourselves, but God, that you have personally built and designed that's so beautiful it can only be described as a radiant bride on her wedding day. So God, we long for that day. We long to be filled with the confidence that we know we need when we so often feel weak and insecure. And God, we trust you, Lord, to transform us and to change us, to give us the fortitude, the endurance, the perseverance, God, that you know we need. And so God, I pray that you would transform us by your word. I pray that we would be a people that never gives up. And God, thank you that even when we fail, you never give up on us. God, we love you and thank you. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.